Hey everyone, welcome back to Music Madness. This is your music bracketologist, Kent. Hope you've been doing all right. We are going to get down to the business end of our dead too early bracket. There have been some great matchups, some surprising results, and I feel like I've learned a lot about these artists along the way. I'm not sure about the rest of you, but I really enjoyed the last episode. I think I'm going to try and do more like that in the future. I just want to find a way to talk more about music. Um, it was probably my favorite episode so far of the pod, so I'm going to I'm gonna try and do that more, so hopefully you like that. And as I say that, we're going to do something completely different today. Uh, we're going to talk about what happened to each of the artists' music after they died. These people were massive artists who died unexpectedly. A number of them were unmarried. A number of them continued to have music put out long after their death. And who did all that? A lot of artists are still in the headlines today after their death for a number of different reasons. So today we're going to talk a little bit about all that, how that's happened. And uh, of course, we're going to come away from this with our final four artists. Before we get to that, though, I'm going to talk a little bit about royalties. Who owns the rights to the music, to the artist's work? I've always been fascinated by this side of it, and I wanted to learn a little bit more about it. So in reality, there are two types of musical rights. The first is called the master rights, which belongs to the owner of the original recording of the song. This can be the artist of themselves, the record label, the recording studio, the manager. It's really whoever funded the recording of the song. There's also what's called the publishing rights. And those are the ones that usually end up getting sold in the market. Those belong to the owner of the original composition of the song. This is why Taylor Swift has been able to re-record her own songs because she owns the publishing rights to those songs because she wrote them even though her old label owns the master rights of the songs. And both types typically get paid something every time the song gets played, used, or repurposed in some way, shape, or form. These rights, as I mentioned, can be bought or sold on the open markets and have a time period for how long they last, and there's all sorts of things that go into the contracts around these. One of the most famous stories I've heard about this was the Beatles' rights came up for sale and Paul McCartney was going to try and buy them. Well, he made the mistake of mentioning to Michael Jackson that they were coming up for sale. He was thinking about buying them, and he thought they'd be a good investment. Michael Jackson turned around and outbid him and bought the rights to the Beatles' music. So until his death, Jackson was getting paid every time you listened to or heard a Beatles song. That's why they were so prevalent and were in so many commercials was because Michael Jackson owned them, and he was uh, not afraid to use them. So very interesting, and that's, uh, that's an example. And what, what I found going through this is that each one of these artists – their rights are held by vastly different groups. And there's some really interesting stories in here about who owns the music for each of these artists after their death. So with that, let's get into it and let's chat a little bit about who each of the who what happened to each of these artists' music after they died. So for the health reasons, just a reminder, we have in our final our number one seed, John Bonham of Led Zeppelin, and our two seed, Freddie Mercury of Queen. So we know Bonham passed away and the band broke up. There were, they were just about to launch off on a big worldwide tour, and there were a bunch of rumors they were trying out other drummers after his death, but they just couldn't replace Bonham. And for good reason, because no one else was as good as him. In fact, they tried reuniting three times uh, afterwards, and uh, it didn't go great. 
First off was in 1985 for the Live Aid concert, which they played with uh, his opponent, Freddie Mercury. They all both were at Live Aid. They replaced him with two drummers at the same time to try and replicate him. They brought in a drummer named Tony Thompson from a band called Power Station and Phil Collins from Genesis, who was actually a pretty good drummer in his own right. But the reviews were terrible. Pat Page, Jimmy Page, said that it was shambolic. Roger Plant, uh, Robert Plant, sorry, said that it was an atrocity, how bad everything went. So it, two drummers, two pretty good drummers, couldn't replace John Bonham. Second time, in 1988, they reunited with Jason Bonham, who is John's son, for Atlantic Records' 40th anniversary party. Plant and Page argued right before they went on stage about what they were going to play, and it was another just disjointed S-show of a performance, and they both said it sucked. And you can see why this group decided to break up without Bonham, because they just couldn't replicate what he was able to do, and without it, what's the point? He was the glue that held it all together. In 2007, they reunited for one last time with Bonham's son, Jason, on the drums again, and the performance set a Guinness Book of World Record for being the most demanded concert ticket ever with 20 million requests for the one show. This one, there were actually some rave reviews and said it was pretty great. There was even talk of a full reunion. However, Robert Plant was touring with Alison Krauss, for their album that had won a Grammy, if you remember from the last um, podcast. He couldn't rejoin, so the conversations ended there. And this was really their last chance because they just got too old. Over the years, they've continued to release box sets, remastered versions of their older albums. Um, The writing credits were owned by Page and Plant, but also split with Bonham and bassist John Paul Jones. However, they're are the rights to the name, the trademark, and the usage rights, which are currently owned 80% by Page and a 20% split between their man with their manager, Peter Grant, who left 10% to each of his kids. As of July 2023, it sounds like one of those kids is actually trying to sell their 10% split, and it's up for sale right now. If anybody has a chunk of change just lying around and really wants to own some of it. So Bonham's heirs do still own some of the rights to um, the the writing credits, which, you know, is probably a pretty healthy income if you're looking for it. So now on to Freddie Mercury and Queen. So I know this is right before he died, but I didn't know this. Queen released an album in early 1991 called Innuendo, including songs like Innuendo and The Show Must Go On. These were highly charting hits, but Freddie couldn't even walk when he recorded them. The band would sit around in the studio working on mixing songs and writing, and he would show up, record vocals for like two hours as much as he could, and he would walk away, go back to bed, and sleep for hours. He died later the the year after they published it, I had to mention it because most vocals couldn't hit some of the notes on those on the show must go on fully healthy. And Freddie did it on his deathbed, beridden by AIDS. So it just kind of shows you how impactful and strong this man's voice was. And um, his bandmates just kept saying he would not stop. He couldn't he couldn't stop play, making music. So it's just incredible uh, what he was able to do. 
1992, after his death, his bandmates and a number of artists put together a Freddie Mercury tribute concert in Wembley with Guns N' Roses, Def Leppard, Elton John, David Bowie, George Michael, Annie Lennox, Metallica, and just a ton of artists performing Queen songs. The concert got 1.2 billion people to watch it, and it set a record for the largest rock benefit concert ever and raised $20 million for AIDS charities uh, after Freddie died. It's just, it's crazy. You just don't see stuff like that anymore. Like you couldn't, I couldn't imagine having equivalent artists like that put together a concert and have 1.2 billion people watch it. Like that's Super Bowl numbers. That's like an insane number of people watching one thing at one time. It just doesn't happen anymore. After Freddie died, the group released uh, one last album with Mercury as the lead singer, and it was titled Made in Heaven, and it was released in 1995. This uh, contained his very last recording, which was called Mother Love, but then there was also Too Much Love Will Kill You and Heaven for Everyone. It was put together by the other three band members. Um, they kind of saw it as like a labor of love to try and remember their friend. And it went on to sell 20 million copies. So it wasn't a bad album. It, like, it's crazy to think, because I always think of uh, Queen as being a 70s album. But they're putting out albums that sold 20 million copies in 1995. Um, that's pretty dang good, right? So in 1997, the remaining members of Queen performed a show with Elton John, where he filled in for Freddie. That's a pretty good stand-in. Um, he convinced the group afterwards that the three of them retiring at the stage they were at was like having a Ferrari sitting in the driveway. <laughs> I mean, that's such an Elton John type of thing to say. Uh, they did a few charity shows, but in 2004, Roger Taylor and Brian May joined up with Paul Rogers, who was the former lead singer of the band Bad Company, to make Queen plus Paul Rogers. The guys never would allow anyone else to actually replace Freddie in the band. So it always had to be Queen plus from then on, which is kind of a cool tribute to Freddie. They toured the world till 2009 and then parted amicably. Uh, in 2011, Taylor and May appeared on the finale for American Idol and they performed with the eventual runner up, Adam Lambert. He did so well and fit in with the two of them so well that they started another group, Queen plus Adam Lambert, and began touring. And they're actually still touring to this day, which I, I, I didn't know that. I had no idea Queen was still out there. They performed the closing ceremonies of the 2012 Olympics in London. They played the Queen's Jubilee in 2022. They've put out two albums, and it was mostly just covers of Lambert singing in Freddie's spot which is, uh, you know, kind of because they own the rights, they can do that. The biopic Bohemian Rhapsody was put out in 2018 with actor Rami Malek playing Freddy. I gotta say, if you haven't seen that movie, check it out. It's fantastic. He's almost a dead ringer and actually won an Academy Award for the best actor for the part. So who owns the rights to their music? The four band members held equal stakes and still do. If you remember, all of them wrote number one songs. So it's an even split between the three remaining members of the the band and the Mercury Trust, which is Freddie's setup uh, trust. According to a number of stories from this summer, the four groups have just put the whole catalog up for sale, and the rumor is they put a billion-dollar price tag on it, and Universal Records is trying to pay it. It would be the largest and most expensive royalty sale of all time. I can't—a billion dollars for the music— 
Freddie's estate was actually given half and half to his very best friend, Mary Austin, who if you've seen the movie, you you know who that is. But also, in, in we've talked a little bit about her. She was at his deathbed. They He was uh, engaged to marry her um, at some point before he really came out as gay. And um, she was always his best friend. And then also he split it with evenly with his parents and his sister. So they're in line for a pretty significant payday if this sale actually goes through. For our results, I can't say I'm all that shocked, but Freddie is moving on with 85% of the vote. Bonham was amazing, but you can't beat the greatest front man of all time. And I mean, a billion dollars. They're, they're talking about selling their record for a billion dollars and largely driven by Freddie Mercury's voice and uh, showmanship. So moving on to the freak accident bracket where we have the four seed Buddy Holly versus the three seed Otis Redding. This is a wild bracket, and I'm excited to see who actually moves on to the final four here because it's just been nothing but chaos, right? Like, I, I we never knew who was actually going to win any of the matchups this uh, whole way through, so I'm excited to kind of show you who actually is going into the final four from here. But let's start with Buddy Holly. As we discussed, he was secretly married. He was only 22 and died in a plane crash. Interestingly, he left behind dozens of unfinished songs and recordings, his record album uh, uh, distribution label was able to continue to put out music for 10 years because he had so many songs just in a backlog. They put out Peggy Sue Got Married, Crying, Waiting, Hoping, and Love is Strange all after he died, which went on to chart and do pretty well. He was part of the inaugural class for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1986, they said that he was one of the most innovative artists of all time and had created so much music in his short career that he created the standard for that which was to come for years going on. If you're going to have a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you got to have Buddy Holly in it because there wouldn't be a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame without Buddy Holly. It still blows my mind that he created the standard for most rock bands today with two guitars, a bass, and a drum. Uh, so I know we talked a little bit about how impactful Buddy Holly was on what came after him, but I, I did a little bit of reading and I was actually really surprised how much impact he had on other people. Supposedly, John Lennon and Paul McCartney went and saw Buddy Holly in person when he was touring the UK. I remember saying how rare that was back in the day for him to go tour the UK, but they were both just teenagers at the time. And one of the first recordings that they did as the Beatles was a cover of That'll Be the Day That I Die. So there's no Beatles without uh, Buddy Holly. Supposedly, also, a 17-year-old Bob Dylan saw Buddy Holly perform two nights before he died in Duluth, Minnesota. And he said it impacted and changed the way he looked at music. Mick Jagger said he saw Buddy Holly play in Woolwich, London, when he was over in tour in there. And it showed Mick who he wanted to be. And it's just kind of crazy to think, because there was the British invasion where all these British bands came over here. How many of them were influenced by a guy from Texas? So it's really just kind of like an echo of Buddy Holly as opposed to really the British invasion, which is, it's kind of crazy to think that how much of an impact he actually had. There've been a number of movies made about him, including one in 1978 where Gary Busey, of all people, played Buddy Holly. That, that makes me laugh, thinking of Gary Busey trying to play Buddy Holly. I guess Busey got nominated for Holly 
uh, for the the role. But Holly's friends in the music industry kind of ripped it because it didn't really show a great representation of Buddy. And we all know that the song American Pie by Don McLean is about the day the music died, which is about when Buddy Holly died with Richie Valens and the Big Popper. So who owns his music today? Uh, it's crazy to think how things have changed because his wife isn't even mentioned in any of the ownership records for his music. But in 1975, Norman Petty, who was Buddy's manager for most of his career, wrote a few of the songs that were we talked about um, and, and was with him all the way through his career owned his catalog and put it up for sale. And it's kind of funny because Paul McCartney bought it. So Paul McCartney owns Buddy Holly's music record, uh, music rights. Um, he bought it and he's owned it ever since. Just a perfect way to kind of tie it all up because the Beatles owe the cricket so much uh, that they pretty much just picked up where he left off. As soon as he died, the Beatles kind of filled that void. And now for his opponent, Otis Redding. We've talked a lot uh, about uh, Sitting on the Dock of the Bay was released two months after Redding died. It was his only number one hit, and it was his biggest hit by far in his career. I feel like that story rang true for a lot of our artists. After the artist dies, their best-known song is released. Um, just makes this whole list more difficult. Um, that song got 8 million airplays back in 1968, which is, that's a crazy number, right? Like, cause it's pre-streaming, it's pre, like even CDs, it's all pressed albums and played on local radio stations. So it's, it's crazy to think how much of that is, uh, was, was played back in the day. It's interesting because at his death, Atlantic Records, who was the distributor of his music, was purchased by Warner Brother Records. And his actual label was Stax Volt, but somehow they'd misdone their contract with Atlantic. So Atlantic owned all of his previous recordings and his unreleased stuff. Merry Christmas to Warner Brothers. Uh, they, were, they were able to release three more Otis Redding albums after his death. The Immortal Re Otis Redding in 1968, Love Man in 1969, and Tell the Truth in 1970. How do you mess that up? Like, that lawyer had to have been fired. Um, sounds like uh, the songs that were on those were Amen, Hard to Handle, Love Man, and Look at the Girl were all on the albums that were released after his death. These were unreleased things. His stuff also included uh, a Monterey Pop album that was put out. Uh, talking about all of the different artists that were presented there. There are a crazy list of artists that have said vocally that they were influenced or wrote songs to honor Otis Redding. This list includes the Beatles, Led Zeppelin, Leonard Skinner, Grateful Dead, the overrated Doors, Aretha Franklin, Marvin Gaye, Janis Joplin, the Bee Gees, Jay-Z, Kanye West, and the list went on and on, but those are just like the big ones. Um, so Atlantic Records a.k.a. Warner Brothers, still own the rights to this entire catalog. I feel kind of sad for the families in both of these cases because Otis Redding also had a wife who was out there doing her thing and never got any royalties from it. But um, So the wealth just passed to their managers, which it sucks. So I'm going to be kind of honest. The results in this one surprised me. Otis Redding is moving into the finals with 65% of the vote. I'm not shocked that 
Uh, he made it. I'm kind of shocked by the margin. I mean, Buddy Holly was so impactful. I mean, Otis Redding was too, so I can't say anything about it. But just winning with 65% of the vote seems like uh, people really like sitting on the dock of the bay. I mean, who doesn't like sitting on a dock? So now we have half of our final four set. So let's get through the rest of it. And we're moving into the OD and drugs bracket. Here we have a battle between two contemporaries. 227 club members, our five seed Janis Joplin and our two seed Jimi Hendrix. While she was alive, Janis had almost as complex a love life as Freddie Mercury, and I don't know if it's talked about as much. It, it, Freddie was kind of out there, I think, just because of who he was, but um, I had no idea of the complications of Janis Joplin's romantic life. Uh, she was a bisexual woman in the 70s, which is crazy to think about and how much she must have had to go through in order to get uh, to even just survive. Um, she had a number of different relationships. She dated celebrities like Chris Christopherson, who wrote uh, Me and Bobby and uh, whatever, the McGee one. <laughs> Me and Bobby McGee. That There you go. Uh, Country Joe McDonald from Country Joe and the Fish. And she was engaged to an author named Seth Morgan, up to the day she died. Her longest relationship, however, was an on-again, off-again relationship with a na woman named Peggy Caserta that we've talked about a little bit throughout the pod. Um, she was a boutique owner from San Francisco who would come in and out of Janice's life, and generally the two of them were bad for each other. They would end up going back to drugs either because they enabled each other or because they ended up breaking up and were parted. Like they couldn't handle it. So just the emotional strain of those two um, really caused a lot of her drug usage. Uh, Caserta ended up writing a book about um, her relationship with Janis Joplin called Going Down with Janice, which was pretty controversial back in the day because it described some sex acts that the two of them did with each other in it, which I can only imagine in the 70s, uh, a book about lesbian love being a... a pretty controversial. Caserta said the book uh, that she was hanging out with, she was going to hang out with Joplin and Morgan the night of her death, uh, but neither of them ended up showing up or even calling her. And this depressed Janice. And this is why she went on a bender. She went out and bought some heroin. And we talked a little bit about it early on that she died from a bad batch. But Caserta asserts in her book that Joplin didn't die of an OD, but that she actually tripped on the heel of her uh, shoe in the shag carpet at the hotel, fell, hit her head on an end table, and died from blunt force trauma, which is is interesting. I mean, it doesn't really change the outcome because she died using drugs in one way or another. But, you know, I think it's much more just trying to say she did no D. Her last album, Pearl, was put out right after her death, and it was her most successful album, contained many of her biggest hits, including Mercedes-Benz, Me and Bobby McGee. Uh, she finished it up right before she passed away. Her nickname was Pearl. I guess I didn't realize that. And in the next year, the Mamas and the Papas actually put out a song called Pearl, which was a tribute to her. I thought it was interesting. One of the things I read was that uh, Janis Joplin actually made having tattoos cool. She had two prominent tattoos, one on her wrist and one on her left chest. And the only people that really had them prior to that were gang members and bikers. And it's not too surprising that she had some because she had an album with uh, 
that was sponsored by Hell's Angels. So I guess it kind of makes sense that she was into tattoos. Her sister wrote a book in the 90s called Love Janice, which was actually turned into a Broadway play by the same name a few years later with input from her sister and other band members. Talking a bit about her rights led me to one of the more interesting stories I've heard about music rights. So the rights uh, for her catalog was purchased just last year. After her death, the rights of her music passed to her manager named Albert Grossman. And in 2022, Grossman sold the rights to this music to a fund named ICM Crescendo Music Royalty Fund. This is a private equity fund based uh, in Canada, which is solely made up of ownership stakes and musical rights. They own some of Destiny Child's songs. They own a lot of Enrique Iglesias. They own some John Legend. And they do own all of Janis Joplin's songs. They also got Gordon Lightfoot songs as part of that. It's an interesting idea, especially hearing the valuations that some of these artists' rights are going for. If Queen's worth a billion dollars, I wonder what they paid for Joplin. Like, it just is a, it's a really interesting, fun idea. And now for her opponent, Jimi Hendrix. So we talked about the fact that Jimi had worked as a studio artist prior to becoming a star on his own. So while he worked as a studio artist, he'd recorded a number of covers and other songs, and even some of the songs that he later would release in early versions. Um, And while he was even alive and just starting to gain popularity, some of the music that he recorded there came under the ownership of a man named Ed Chaplin from PPX, which was a record label at the time. He had signed a contract with them for three years of his recording rights, and he'd recorded a number of of these things in PPX's studios. Chaplin would actually put out these songs mixed by somebody else um, alongside Jimi Hendrix's albums. Um, They were Jimi, but they were very different versions, and Jimi was not happy about that. Um, But then, for some reason, the man went back to a PPX studio and recorded more music there. He went there with a a pretty unique session where he took an eight-string bass and a wah-wah pedal, which was a brand-new invention, and recorded some songs there that had never appeared anywhere else. One of those songs actually ended up being sampled later on by the Beastie Boys because it was such a unique beat and a different sound. Anyhow, after he died, there were three more compilation albums put out um, with that, with authorized music, The Cry of Love, Rainbow Bridge, and War Heroes. A lot of it was just remasterings or remixes of his older stuff. One of the things I thought was really interesting about him was just the impact he had on music after his death. Um, Leah talked a little bit about uh, the experimentation he did with pedals on his music, but it, it was crazy as I read into it more to hear how much he actually influenced the use of pedals. Distortion pedals were, were a new technology in the 60s, and a lot of guitarists didn't really like them and didn't know how to use them. But Jimmy didn't meet a pedal he didn't like. In 1966, he started using a fuzz pedal, which was the, the first of its kind. It made kind of guitars have a fuzz sound. You can hear it in a lot of his songs. He was experimenting with sounds no one else was making. And then he started trying a new pedal called a fuzz face pedal, which was uh, the next advancement in this space, which supposedly got him actually booed off a few stages in London because people didn't like the sound. They just weren't used to it. It was like, what the heck is that? Um, 
there was a technician whose name was Roger Mayer that traveled with Jimmy, and the two of them would just make up sounds like the fuzz. Mayer created the fuzz face pedal, and then Jimmy would go out there and try it out. Later on, Mayer created a pedal called the Octavia, and Jimmy experimented with it, and it actually, he used it within days of it being created to make the song Purple Haze and Fire. It was the first time he'd ever used it, and it there's just so many other stories like that as I was reading through it on the number of different types of songs and pedals that Jimmy used to make those sounds. Could you imagine rock music without pedals and distortion and all that? I mean, there are so many different sounds that are created today with distortion pedals, but it was all started from Jimi Hendrix trying them out, right? Like, and making cool sounds and showing people what was possible. I can't imagine rock music today. I know others were using them, but he was the one that was doing it different than anybody else. I saw one writer say that you can hear his influence on hard rock, heavy metal, funk, post-punk, grunge, hip-hop. So many different genres were influenced and created by this man. It's just super cool to learn this kind of stuff. I don't know offhand, but this has to be one of the biggest hitters on Rolling Stone's initial list of the top 500 songs of all time, but Jimmy had seven songs off that list. Um, so he he has three now, um, but that's still just a crazy number. His album, Are You Experienced, had four songs on that initial list with Purple Haze, Foxy Lady, Hey Joe, and The Wind Cries Mary. So it sounds like the rights to Jimmy's music is still a bit messy. We talked about PPX contract and the bootlegged stuff. At the time of his death, he didn't have a will. So all his wealth and the rights to his music passed to his estranged father, who he had moved away to get away from. Lucky dude. Um, In 2020, the estate was estimated to be worth about $220 million. His dad set up two trusts that own the rights to the music, and in 2009, the estate signed a distribution agreement with Sony Music to use the music. Um, However, just last year in 2022, the estate of Noel Redding and Mitch Mitchell, his two bandmates in the Hendrix experience, sued his estate with a cease and desist order saying that they owned some of the music. Hendrick's estate say they that the two of them signed away their rights back in the 70s, but now both of them are actually dead, and their estates are suing to try and get a little bit more of the money, and they say that they're owed millions of dollars. So, well, it'll be interesting to see how that kind of works out, but it's all interestingly owned by Jimmy's estate right now. So Janice's Cinderella run comes to an end here because she ran into the buzzsaw that is Jimi Hendrix. Jimmy takes down 70% of the vote and moves into the final four. I can't say I'm surprised. I liked Jimmy before doing this pod, but going through it, I think I've become an even bigger fan just because the man's innovation. I love rock music, if you can't kind of pick some of that up. And I don't think the genre to even really exist without his influence. And then our final matchup is in the Violent Death group. We have our one seed, Kurt Cobain from Nirvana versus our Tupac two seed. (laughs) Um, So first off, Tupac, uh, we've already talked a bit about his career after death because so much of his good music came out then. But he might have one of the most extensive collections of 
post-death releases of any artist on this list. He put out seven albums after his death from 1996 all the way to 2005, including the Don Kilimati, The Seven Day Theory, Are We You Still Down, Still Rise, Until the End of Time, Better Days, Loyal to the Game, and Pox Life. Six of these albums all went platinum, which explains why his record album did it. Um, almost all rappers who worked with Tupac at the time say he was the hardest rap working rapper out there, which is why there was so much content to be released. Um, once he was paroled in 1995 to the time of his death in 1996, he worked constantly. Snoop Dogg um, was one of his close friends and was always working with him, said he would make three songs an hour when he was really just in the zone or in his flow, he would just put, say, put on a beat and then he would start rapping to it. He would edit it a little bit, but it would take him 20 minutes more or less to throw together a song, which is crazy. Uh, he said most artists took 12 hours to put together a song. There's just so much speculation that Tupac thought or knew he was going to die soon. So it, it's why he was working so hard is some of the speculation he, he not only recorded music during that time, but in the year he was out, he put out three movies. So that man just must not have slept. So part of the reason why Tupac is still so interesting and popular is because there are a ton of theories about who killed Tupac Shakur. Uh, the case is still open to this day. And I actually mentioned in one of the other pods on a previous show that there was a raid executed earlier this year. Um, because it's still an open case in Las Vegas. So here's just a short list of a few theories I read. I know there are hundreds of them out there, but these are some of the more interesting ones. First off, Biggie paid someone to kill his longtime rival and one-time friend. There was a documentary put out a few years ago that speculated that this was the most likely cause. The guy who was suspected of killing Tupac was actually killed a few years later in another gang-related crime, so he wasn't able ever able to talk about it, so just kind of feels too convenient. There's another theory that Tupac's producer and notorious just bad dude, Suge Knight, orchestrated the hits on both Tupac and Biggie, A, because he wanted to earn more money from the feud, uh, but B, his biggest fear was that Tupac was actually going to retire from rap and focus on acting, because he was a pretty good actor. Uh, I can only imagine... When the offer for the Star Wars role came through to be Mace Windu, um, Tupac might have actually thought about quitting because that's a pretty big thing. That would have been years of making a movie and a, such a big thing. Um, Suge certainly benefited a lot more with a dead Tupac than Tupac being a full-time actor. That one seems a little crazy and out there, but, you know, it's a theory. Um, another theory is that Tupac is still alive. One of Tupac's former security guards claimed he's actually still alive and living in Cuba. The security guard uh, seems to have tried to prove this by pretending to die. And it seems like he had died. And then he came back a year later just to prove it was possible. Uh, this claim was corroborated by another rapper who claimed that he also knew that Tupac is still living in Cuba. Unlikely, but, you know, still sounds interesting. Another theory that was put forward by Suge Knight was that Tupac wasn't even the target that Suge was. Um, someone was trying to perform a coup 
to take over Death Row Records, and they were trying to kill Suge. That seems like a narcissist being a narcissist, but you never know. Um, so it's uh, Tupac, and it's it's interesting some, to hear some of the theories and why uh, people think that they don't. They, no one knows. We're still not sure why he was killed, but those are some of the theories. I was interested as I was reading through it. Tupac and Biggie actually had created a song together in 1994, which was before their feud, and it was before Tupac got shot in that robbery. It was released in 2003 and was produced by Eminem. They each recorded a verse with the intention of releasing it together, but then Tupac got shot, went to jail, and the feud started, and he blocked it from being used. Um, It was released after they were both dead, so it's just kind of interesting. After Tupac's death, the rights to his music passed to his mother, Afeni. Um, She started a company called Amuri Records in 1997, after his death to manage the publication of all the music he'd recorded prior to his death, but hadn't put out. So this is why those six albums were put out after his death was because his mom put it together. However, the ownership of the masters of his already released stuff belonged to death row records because Suge Knight and his company had paid for the publication. Interestingly enough, death row was just acquired by his good buddy, Snoop Dogg. So he says that he owns anything that was released while Tupac was alive. So it's just it's just kind of complicated as you get into this to try and figure out who actually owns this music now. And finally, our number one seed, Kurt Cobain of Nirvana. So in the last episode, we talked about Cobain's struggles with cocaine and his eventual suicide. But right before his death, the group had been working on their next album, which was going to be called Verse, Chorus, Verse. Grohl and Novolasek, uh, who were the drummer and the bassist, decided instead to cancel the album because they found it just too difficult to work on an album that had Kirk's voice on it. They, they didn't like having to listen to it all the time. Their record album instead put out Uh, the MTV Unplugged album, which went right to number one on the charts and won them a Grammy for Best Alternative Album. They put out two more live albums afterwards, one called Live Tonight Sold Out and one called From the Muddy Banks of the Wishka. Both of them ended up topping the tops of the Billboard charts and doing pretty well. It's crazy because right after Kurt Cobain died, Dave Grohl founded the Foo Fighters in 1994, the same year Kurt died. Like, he didn't even wait a year. Um, So I started researching into this a little bit. And I read an interview with Dave Grohl, and he said he was just distraught after Kurt died. The three years he was with Nirvana were the best years of his life. And he didn't even know what to do with his life afterwards because he had had been on such like an emotional high. He went on a soul-searching trip to Ireland. He was driving around and pitched, picked up a hitchhiker. And of course, the guy gets in the car wearing a Kurt Cobain shirt. He just couldn't go anywhere without getting reminded of this. So it, it was. he said it was actually cathartic for him because it was a sign that he couldn't get away from it. He had to get back to work. He had to go and do something. Um, so he, he decided to try and put together a group. What is crazy to me, and I had no idea this was true, um, Grohl put together his own uh, debut album for the band The Foo Fighters, but on it, it was just Dave. He played every musical part 
for their debut album. He played the drums, guitar, he sang, he played the bass, he did it all, and then he mixed it all together in the in the studio. Their debut album, which was the self-titled Foo Fighters, has like that uh, the like ray gun on the front of it, had the songs This Is A Call, Big Me, and I'll Stick Around on it, which if you lived in the 90s, those songs were huge. I still love those songs. Um, they were all just Dave Grohl, which... I had no idea. He only put the band together afterwards for his second album, The Color and the Shape, which came out in 97. Um, The second album, he put together a song called My Hero, which is about his friend Kurt, and he was dedicating it to them. So it's interesting because the Foo Fighters have gone on to win 15 Grammys, sold over 30 million albums, and are one of the biggest rock rock bands in the world to this day. The other member of the band was Chris Novolasek, Uh, He thought about joining Dave and the Foo Fighters, but he and Dave thought it would just be too much pressure on the band to be like Nirvana. So Chris decided not to do it and went on and he dabbled in music for a few years. He retired off and on there, Um, but he was never really part of another successful band after that. He did some political activism around musical rights, interestingly enough. Um, He joined a few independent political parties in um, Washington state. He, he's been an independent um, and he ended up actually joining Andrew Yang's independent party, the, the the forward party in 2003, 23 to run for some political offices. So interesting to kind of see how divergent those two were. Um, After Kurt died, there has been pretty much nonstop fighting over the royalties for Nirvana's music. In 1992, Kurt had married Hole, the band. The band's name is Hole. Hole's lead singer, Courtney Love. Only eight people attended the ceremony, and Dave Grohl was one of them. But Chris uh, Novoselic decided not to do it. He thought uh, Love was a terrible influence on Kurt, and she was really just feeding into Kurt's drug habit. When Kurt died um, in 1997 afterwards, uh, Love, Novolasek, and Grohl formed an LLC that would oversee the release of Nirvana's future albums. But in 2001, she sued to dissolve that LLC because she thought they were just kind of riding on Kurt's coattails. Kurt had been Nirvana. They had just been two sidemen that were there, but they they weren't Nirvana. Um, This kind of hurt. And then they made, then the two of them made some comments in the press um, about her musical abilities and how she was just uh, like Yoko, more or less, uh, and she didn't like that at all. Um, in 2006, Love sold 25% of the rights of Nirvana's royalties to a firm called Primary Wave for an estimated $50 million. Primary Wave is a distribution company that puts out all sorts of music, so they now are using some of his rights in order to sell music. Grohl and Novosek didn't like how Love had control over Cobain's likeness as part of the estate. In 2009, in Guitar Hero 5, you could play as Kurt Cobain, and Grohl and Novelisek said Kurt would have hated that. Um, they, they, They fought up against it. There was a lot of posts on social media. The two of them came out and said, we had nothing to do with this. This is an abomination. Uh, and it was under the control of the estate. Courtney Love, being Courtney Love, denied it, said, no way, I wouldn't have done this, but programmers from Activision came out and said she was heavily involved and had okayed the entire thing and helped create the likeness. So 
a lot of stuff she says you can't really trust. Um, the royalties are still complicated, but as I can figure it out, Love and her daughter um, still own a majority stake around 50 to 30%. Grohl and Novosec own 12.5% of the royalties from like 11 songs. I couldn't find a list anywhere, but everyone was pretty adamant it was the number it was 11. Um, but what I could see, it includes songs like Smells Like Teen Spirit and Aneurysm, which makes it so it's probably worth it. Uh, I saw something estimate that like 98% of the revenue goes to Primary Wave and uh, Love, but 2% of the revenue goes to those guys just because they don't get everything. But, you know, it's, it's probably still a lot of money. Um, I'd imagine they're their most popular songs, so at least they're getting some money under you know, Grohl's doing okay. I mean, he's still the lead singer of Foo Fighters. He's he's he owns plenty of his own music. Um, in 2010, Frances Bean, who's Kurt's daughter with uh, Love, took over her mother's share of Nirvana's royalties. Um, I wonder if it was her idea to start selling so many Nirvana shirts again, because I swear every kid I see on the street has a Nirvana shirt on nowadays. So for the results. Uh, Kurt Cobain is into the final four and it's with 70% of the vote. So he's actually our only number one seed to survive all the way to the final, which is kind of shocking to me. He had a lot of competition in his bracket. Um, this is a lot different than last season because last season we had all four number one seeds. So I'm kind of excited to see that Tupac's great and put up a good fight. Um, interestingly enough, this was a battle of two nineties icons. And I, I think the one with the larger influence ended up moving through, but, uh, you know, it was a valiant effort nonetheless. So there you go. That's our final four from the health reasons bracket. We have our number two seed, Freddie Mercury of queen from the freak accident bracket. We have three seed Otis Redding in the OD and drugs bracket. We have the two seed of Jimi Hendrix. And in the violent death bracket, we have our soul number one seed, Kurt Cobain of Nirvana. That is such a final four. It's uh, that is crazy. If if I like could only pick four artists to listen to the rest of my life, that wouldn't be so bad, right? Like you kind of have a very diverse group of sounds. Um, you have kind of all over the place. Interestingly, we have two groups of artists who died within three years of each other. Otis died in 1967, and Jimmy died in 1970. While Freddie, who's better known for his music in the 70s, died in 1991, and Kurt Cobain died in 1994. Um, I have a feeling I know who's going to make it through, but I'm not sure. This could go either way. So it'll be interesting to see where we end up in the final two. Next week, I'm going to try something a little different, because like I said, I want to get back to talking about music. So what I'm going to try and do is take each of the artists' top five songs by, by play, the number of times they've been played, and talk about those. I have a feeling that some of the songs I talked about in my top three will be on those names, but we'll see. I'm going to try and dig into it. I may just jump over those and go to the next one, but I'll try and figure out how to do it. But I want to talk a little bit more about their most loved songs as opposed to my own. I don't know what that list looks like. There may be some crossover, but we'll, we'll figure it out. Also, uh, voting is now open until September 14th at noon central time. Sadly, I have to travel for work for our final and will not be out until September 28th. But I have something special and could be kind of fun planned for the week in the middle, which we'll talk about next week. If you enjoyed this episode, please drop us a five star or a thumbs up. Like always, I've included a link to vote, a link to our discord, 
the link to the songs that we talked about last week. So it's uh, my still my top three songs. And remember, you may not like the results, but you can't argue with the process. If you don't like how things are going, the only way to change this is to invite more of your friends with similar musical tastes to vote. And most of all, don't forget to enjoy the madness. 